we're going to have a question time tonight. So there uh, have been lots of people asking questions about John's Gospel as we've been going through it uh, this year. So if you've got questions, make sure you store them up and ask them. It's always funny at a question time if no one asks any questions. I always feel a bit embarrassed up here, so make sure you ask me some questions, uh, preferably something to do with John's Gospel. But uh, that's what we're going to do tonight. We do that just once in a while, just uh, to encourage people to ask their questions of God's Word. Uh, but now I'm going to pray, and we're going to look at John chapter 5, so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we've learned already from John's Gospel, especially the way it has shown us so clearly who Jesus is, that he is the one who is both, was both with God in the beginning and is God. And Father, we thank you also for the way that has not just shown us who Jesus is, but has shown us the right way to respond to him in faith and in repentance and seeking to worship him with our whole lives. And so Father, we pray tonight that you'll again give us an even clearer picture of Jesus, but also a clearer picture of how we should live for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just imagine if uh, tonight here at church, instead of doing a sermon... I performed a miracle. Uh, some One person came up to me after church this morning and said, it's a miracle every week, Phil, that I listen to your whole sermon. But uh, <laughs> I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment or anyway, I chose to take it that way. Uh, but let's make it a good one. Let's just say there was someone here who'd been paralysed for 38 years. Let's just pick a number out of the air. Uh, and uh, imagine if I just walked in and with a word healed him. What do you think we would do? I think we'd have a party, wouldn't we? You know, that would just be the end. of ch- Everyone would just be rejoicing. Everyone would be so happy. Everyone would be so over the moon. Uh, we'd just stop the service and have a party. That's what we'd do. Uh, it's funny, though, in the Gospels, when Jesus does these incredible miracles, and he does so many of them, but when he does these incredible miracles, sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes people just respond by dropping everything, praising God and, and saying, rejoicing, and, and that's the response. But other times, there is this strange response. Uh, And sometimes you get a story like this one, where the response is just wrong. It's the only word I can think of for the response here to what Jesus does. It's just wrong. Uh, But it's often these wrong responses to Jesus in the Gospels, where we actually learn more about who Jesus is, and learn more about what the right response should be. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So let's get into it. Open up John chapter 5. You'll want to have it open in front of you because we're looking at some verses in detail. Uh, It tells us that Jesus is back in Jerusalem because there was a a Jewish festival. We're not told what festival it was this time. Might be another, a year might have gone past and it's Passover again, or it might be one of any other Jewish festival. But this time Jesus has not gone to the temple. This time Jesus has gone to a pool. So look at verse 2. It says, by the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Do you notice how specific John is with his details, where he gets right down to it's near this gate and it's, it's built like this and all that sort of thing. That's really important. That's because he's saying this is a real place. When John wrote this, he's saying, you, you could have gone here. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll find this place because he wants you to know these are real events that occurred in real places, in real time, with real people. Uh, in fact, you can still go there. So if we put it up on the screen, thanks our PowerPoint person, there, now the difficulty is there's been 2,000 years of civilization since then, but archaeologists are absolutely certain that that is where this pool was, where this miracle occurred. So they've had to dig down through the Muslim and the 
Jewish and all the other groups who've lived in Jerusalem for the last 2,000 years, but they found the five colonnades. They found the sort of remnants of them. So that is where, if you ever go to Jerusalem, you can go and you can go to the pool. I don't imagine there's actually a lot of water to swim in down there underneath all the ruins, but you can go there and see where this miracle happened because it's a real place, it's in history. And for the next picture up on the screen, this is sort of how the archaeologists reproduce what it would have looked like. That's what they mean by colonnades, sort of covered areas around two pool areas where the people were lying and sitting around the pools. That's what it would have looked at, like. But Jesus didn't go there for a swim. He went there because that was where the sick and the broken and the lame people were. So look at verse 3. It says, within these colonnades lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame and paralysed. I often think when people claim to be faith healers today, I won't ask you to put up your hand, but if you ever watch, you know, the guys on television at 4.30 in the morning uh, and those sort of people, those people who claim they're healing people, I always think, well, why don't you go down to St George Hospital and do it? You know, why don't you go where the sick people, if you, if you can really heal, go down there and do it instead of getting people in your studio where, you know, where it can't be tested. Uh, that's what Jesus did. Jesus went where the sick people were and found them and healed them. Uh, and now that next, next little bit there, look there at the end of verse 3. Do you see how there's a bit that sort of has square brackets around it through to the end of verse 4? Uh, that's because John probably didn't write that bit. Getting sort of a little bit technical here. Uh, but the earliest copies of John's Gospel just go straight from the word paralyzed there to the verse we have as verse 5. It seems that what happened was, at a later point, a few years down the track, a well-meaning scribe said, if you don't live in Jerusalem, you won't know what this pool was all about, I'll give you a bit of an explanation. Uh, and if you look down at verse 7, it gives you the explanation anyway. There was a belief that you could be healed if you got in the water of this pool when it was swirling around. That was the belief. Just by the way, that's actually a reminder of how trustworthy the Bible is. Uh, the text of the New Testament is more scrutinised than any other document in history. People don't understand this. I was listening to the radio at Easter time and this guy gets on there and he says, yeah, you've just got to accept that Jesus lived by faith because, you know, over the millions of years it's all been changed and, well, one, it was 2,000 years, not millions of years, but the, so many of these people do not know what they're talking about. And it's this common lie, I have, I have, the Bible's been changed. No, there's actually more scholarship for the text of the New Testament than any other document. Uh, and those rare moments like this where it's decided that someone added something later actually prove how trustworthy the whole thing is. Because actually, the vast majority of the text of the New Testament, they've gone right back to the earliest possible dated manuscripts. So when you hear those know-it-alls saying, you know, you can't trust that, it was written hundreds of years later, just don't worry about them. They're just know-it-alls who don't know anything. It's just ignorance. By all means, choose not to believe that the apostles were recording it truthfully, but don't discount it for that ignorant reason that's not true, that it wasn't recorded accurately. The scrutiny of the New Testament stands up to it is just incredible. But anyway, here is Jesus. He's at the pool of Bethesda with all these desperate people, and now the camera sort of like focuses down in on this one man. And so look there at verse 5, it says, One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Seems he was lame or paralysed, but the point is it had been 38 years. And the reason they tell us that, I think, is this wasn't just like a bad back, like Benny Hinn heals, you, you know. This wasn't a tummy ache. 
this wasn't something doctors could fix. And so Jesus asked him, look at verse 6, he says, do you want to get well? So this is a great question, isn't it? Seems a strange question, you know, well, of course. But actually people think maybe Jesus is saying to them, do you want to get well? Because his only living might be being a beggar. And so if he's healed, he might now be able to walk, but he might starve is sort of the point but I actually think it's more Jesus is just making him the offer he's saying if you want to be healed I'll do it I can do it but the man doesn't know that because he's still caught up on the healing waters look at verse 7 sir the sick man answered I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up but while I'm coming someone goes down ahead of me I think that's just a really really sad verse about the state of this man's life He obviously had a friend or family member who could get him there in the morning, maybe before they went off to work, but he did not have a friend enough who would stay around with him and help him get down into the water. So whenever it happened, he'd be there shuffling along, but he could not get the two steps into the water because other people would get in first. And I think he's sort of saying, oh Jesus, are you offering to be my friend? Are you offering to help me into the water? But Jesus is a much better friend than that. Look at verse 8. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Have you noticed how just matter-of-fact it is in the Gospels? Just like that in one sentence, with a word, Jesus heals this man and he gets up and walks. And it's just one of those incredible miracles of Jesus, isn't it? You know, with a word, a man who's been sick for 38 years is healed, just like that. With a word, a man who couldn't get himself down a couple of steps into the water is able to get up and walk away and pick up his mat. Of course, we know that it's even more than a miracle. Uh, If you remember, in John's Gospel, it keeps telling us these things are signs. And what they are doing is shining a light on who Jesus is for us. See, the Old Testament talked about the messianic age. It talked about the one who would come to be the saviour of God's people. And in places like Isaiah 35, it's on your outline, so pull out your outline and have a look at these verses. Isaiah 35, it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. We'll see that in a couple of chapters. Then the ears of the death unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Well, here is the lame man leaping. See, and as we look at this miracle, we're not just meant to say, how amazing is Jesus? He healed a man. We're meant to say, how amazing is it that the one God promised has come, the Messiah, the Saviour King? But back to the story. Because if you stopped it there, you would just assume that the next few verses would have the man sort of being overjoyed and saying, Jesus, how can I ever repay you for making me walk again? Uh, And people being amazed by Jesus and everyone saying, what must we do to be saved? And that's sort of the Bible as I would like it to be written, uh, but that's not what happened. Because at the end of verse 9, if you know the Gospels very well, you'll hear some really ominous words. Look there. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. And if you know the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees in particular had a real thing about the Sabbath and they had a real thing about Jesus doing anything on the Sabbath. And so you know we're going to have a fight. So it says, now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, it's illegal for you to pick up your mat. Isn't that just about the saddest possible response to a miracle you could ever get? 
Here is a man who has not walked for 38 years, walking into them, and instead of rejoicing, instead of going, that is amazing, you couldn't walk yesterday, now you can walk. They said, how dare you walk on the Sabbath? Isn't that just the most wrong-headed view of the world you could possibly have? See, the Sabbath law goes right back to the Ten Commandments. That's why we read some of the Ten Commandments as an Old Testament reading before. It said, do all your work on six days, but on the seventh day rest from your labours. Now, the actual Sabbath law was about your normal job. So it's like if you're a farmer, don't just work seven days a week. Work for six days and then rest on the seventh. And it was meant to teach the Israelites that, that you didn't need, God would provide for you, you didn't need to provide everything. It was meant to give you a time to say, I am going to rest and thank God for his provision. It wasn't meant to stop you moving your mat. God never designed it that people would go around saying, oh, that person moved a piece of furniture on the Sabbath. Sorry, that's it, all over. But by the time of Jesus, they'd accumulated so many laws, hundreds of them, about what was work and what wasn't work on the Sabbath, that they had lost the point. By the way, the spirit of the Pharisees, legalism, comes alive in every age of Christianity. Every Christian is tempted at some point to be a Pharisee, to be a legalist. Often it gets misdiagnosed. I've lost count of the number of people who seem to think any encouragement to do anything godly is in danger of being a legalist. So sometimes I've said from the front, make every effort to read your Bible every day. And I've had someone say to me, hey, we don't want to be legalists. There's nothing legalist about just being godly. Read God's Word every day. You you know, that's just being a godly Christian. Or Christians should come to church every week. Hey, we don't want to be Pharisees. No, we're just being a godly Christian. You, You know, that's not legalism. What legalism is, is when you only care about obeying the laws and you don't care about the heart of the law. So when a person is more concerned with, well, I come to church every week, even though they go out there and live a life of ungodliness for the rest of the week. Or when a person says, I read my Bible, but they don't care what it actually says, they're just ticking off the rule. That's what legalism is. I remember I was on a mission once, and we were running a drop-in centre for young people at this church, and uh, this church had no one under the age of about 70. So it it was a dying church, uh, and we said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do, We'll, we'll move some of the furniture in the church, and we'll set up some table tennis tables, And people can come in, some of the young people in the town can come in, play table tennis, we'll share the gospel with them and who knows, they might come to know Jesus. And so anyway, we were getting 40 or 50 young people every night hearing the gospel saying, we want to study the Bible, we're having Bible studies the next day, it was great. And I was speaking to one of the elderly men from the church, one of the leaders of the church, and I said, how great is this? So many young people coming to your church. And he said, well, just make sure they put the pews back in place by tomorrow. That was his response. I didn't say it, but I thought, well, I hope these young people find a better church than this. I hope they don't come here, because here, this is a church of Pharisees rather than a church of the gospel. He was more concerned with how the building looked than with whether people could come to know Jesus or not. What would it matter if a pew was in a wrong spot on a Sunday if a person had moved from death to life? Back to our story. Here is their sad response. Rather than rejoicing in a miracle, they were judging a man for picking up his mat on the Sabbath. But do you know, I think the saddest thing in this story, we sort of expect it from the Pharisees, don't we? The saddest thing in the story is the man who was healed. Because they say to him, what are you doing 
picking up your mat and walking on the Sabbath, and he says, Jesus made me do it. He just says, don't get me in trouble. It's that guy, except the funniest, the saddest funniest sort of thing is he doesn't even know it was Jesus. He didn't hang around, a guy has healed him after 38 years of paralysis, and he didn't hang around long enough to say, what's your name? Can I thank you? He's realised this, well, I don't even know who Jesus is. Really, he's good, verse 11. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. It's not my fault, blame the guy who healed me. But probably spotting a better catch in their legalistic net, they turn their attention to the man who healed him. And I think they know it's Jesus, even if he doesn't. See, they, they're thinking, this must be Jesus, he's the only one who can do this. Uh, but what is he doing, telling people to pick up their mat on the Sabbath? Look at verse 12. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And that would have been that, except that Jesus didn't leave it there. The man was in the temple, we don't know how long later, and Jesus seeks him out and has a word with him. Look at verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. I think that's one of the scariest lines Jesus ever says. Uh, I love it when Jesus sort of confounds our overly simplistic pictures of him. Uh, We don't associate Jesus with threats, do we? But that's actually what he's doing here. He's threatening this man, not in a personal way. But what's Jesus saying to him? Jesus is saying, I've made you well. Don't keep sinning or something worse than 38 years of paralysis might happen to you. See, for Jews at that time, sickness meant you had done something wrong. We have to understand this. We don't have this same association. They generally thought sickness equals bad person. So if something bad happens to you, it must be you've upset God. And and so God is judging you in some way. So remember in the book of Job in the Old Testament, how his mates come to him and say, well, you must have done something, Job, else God wouldn't be doing this to you. Now, Jesus breaks that sort of automatic connection. We'll get to that in John 9 in a few weeks' time. Jesus says, no, no, when bad things happen, that doesn't necessarily mean God is judging you. Uh, It's more often, it's usually just a consequence of the fact we're living in this sinful, fallen world. So when a person is sick... We can never say that is because you have sinned and that is a judgment of God on you. We should never say that. I've heard Christians say that to people. Don't dare ever say that to a person. But that doesn't mean that it's never actually the case. Sometimes in the New Testament we're told that things happen to people, sickness and other things, because of their sin. So while you can't be certain of that in any one instance, sometimes it does happen. So in the Corinthian church, God actually says... You are all getting sick because of how you are treating the death of Jesus as a whole church. And so when bad things happen to us or others, it's meant to actually be a trigger to ask, well, are there things I need to repent of? Is there sin in my life I haven't dealt with and handed over to God and sought his forgiveness? This side of heaven, though, we'll never know if there is a link. But for ourselves, I sort of think, what's the harm of considering your life and repenting? if there are things you need to repent of. But it seems that here for this guy, Jesus is drawing that link. He's saying, I have healed you of your terrible illness, not because you deserved it, 
you're a sinner. So now, don't just keep on sinning. See this as me, I've given you a chance now to reconsider your life. Because if you keep sinning, even worse things will happen to you. Worse that is than being paralysed for 38 years. Now it could mean you'll get sick again, but I think Jesus is probably talking about hell. He's talking about the judgment of God. He's saying, I fixed your physical problem for you now, but it will be nothing compared to what will happen if you don't deal with your sin. And if you had any sense of hope for this guy that he would do that, you lose it in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Just in case you're someone who's really charitable, he was not evangelizing them. He was not saying, now I know who's made me well, you need to come and worship Jesus. He was dobbing Jesus in. He was saying, don't get angry at me, now I can give you the guy. And that, so from this point on, this guy's just an ungrateful fool, isn't he? he? He really is just one of the worst characters in the Bible who gets something incredible given to him and just doesn't respond rightly. And I think one of the reasons John includes this man's story is to act as a warning to us. You see, there are lots of people he includes who are an example to us. There's lots of people in John's Gospel, you read it and you go, that's what I should be like. Jesus has done that for me, I should have faith in him, I should trust him, I should follow him. This guy, he's an example of people who know what Jesus has done for him, but then reject Jesus anyway. Jesus has offered us a healing so much better than this one. Jesus doesn't promise us that he will heal, heal us from our illnesses or our sicknesses in this life. If a preacher ever promises you that, he is a false teacher and just move on from that church. No, Jesus does promise us something far better. He promises us forgiveness for our sins. He promises us a place in his kingdom and he promises us freedom from God's condemnation and he has done the miracle already in his death when he paid the price for our sins and in his resurrection when he gives us the hope of eternal life. And so the saddest person on earth, and please listen very carefully at this point, especially if you are someone who has grown up in the church, the saddest person on earth, the person who is in the scariest position in this whole world, is the person who has experienced Jesus's grace. The person who knows the truth, who knows Jesus died for our sins and rose again, but then rejects it. And I think this man is a warning to us against that response to Jesus. At another point, Jesus actually says, it would be better, it, was, it will be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the worst sinners in the history of the world, it would be better to be in Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed it, than to be someone who knows Jesus and rejects him. Do not be someone who knows the truth about Jesus and then says, but I'll just keep on living without him. That is what this man did. But back to the last little bit of our story, our last little part. Now that they knew it was Jesus, the Jews are after him. Look at verse 16. It says, therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now they had the ammunition to go after him. They'd never liked him, but now they had something to go for him with. Now the thing is, and this is what I would have done if I was Jesus, which always tells you it would be the wrong thing to do. Uh, Jesus could have actually gone back to the Old Testament and showed them how he wasn't breaking the Old Testament law. That's sort of what I think he should have done, you know, like just prove that he's smarter than them. 
you know. The Sabbath law had always allowed doing good on the Sabbath. So Jesus wasn't breaking the law. And it had never been meant to stop someone picking up their mat and walking on the Sabbath. Jesus could have easily just defended himself and won. But he didn't because Jesus had a bigger game to play. And part of that game was lifting it to a whole new level. If you want to understand what Jesus does here, uh, picture one of those sort of Hollywood courtroom dramas where they have the defendant in the dock and, and he's been accused of a crime, but it's not that big a crime. So let's just say it's like Jesus has been accused of theft and, and then Jesus says, well, I can't possibly be guilty of theft because when you say it happened at 12 o'clock on Wednesday, I was murdering someone. So my alibi is that I've done something far worse. That's what Jesus does to them here. He, sort of, he actually treats them with contempt. Uh, he says, you think working on the Sabbath is an issue? I'll give you blasphemy for which you should stone me straight away. Look at verse 17. But Jesus responded to them, my father. That's the blasphemy. We're used to calling God our father because we know Jesus. But to call God my father is saying, I am the son of God. And they knew it. So he says, my father is still working and I am working also. Now, before we get to the blasphemy, the controversy, they would have agreed with his point theologically. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but his point is God does not stop working on the seventh day. He set that pattern right back in creation. He worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. But now God sustains creation all the time. So on the Sabbath, God doesn't say, ah, sparrows fall to the ground. Flowers stop growing. I'm going to stop working for the good of those who love me. You can work for yourselves for a day. He doesn't do that. God just keeps working. That wasn't controversial. They agreed with Jesus about that. What was controversial was that Jesus said, my father is allowed to work on the Sabbath and so am I because I'm God. See, Jesus was saying as clear as you like, I am the son of God and anything God can do, I am allowed to do. And the Jews got that straight away. That's why they wanted to kill him. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, the fact that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We'll get to the Holy Spirit in a few weeks. Next week's passage plums the depths of this even more. Uh, but just as we finish today, it's for that sentence that Jesus says there about my Father, that is why Jesus demands a response from us. See, that is why every person's eternal destiny hangs on their response to Jesus. Because Jesus is not just a religious leader, he's not just a wise teacher. As C.S. Lewis famously said, wise teachers don't tell people that they are God. That's what crazy people do, or what God does. Jesus is God in the flesh. That is not something people thought up years later to try to try and explain Jesus. That is something Jesus claimed on his very own lips here in John's Gospel. And what does that mean? That means we need to listen to him, and it means we need to trust him, and it means we need to live our lives to worship him. Isn't that right? You might almost say there is no other sane option than to worship Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for what you have revealed to us about your Son. And we thank you that he is God the Son, equal with you in every way. 
But more than that, we thank you that he has done that incredible miracle of saving us by dying in our place and rising to life again. And Father, we pray that we would not be so foolish as to follow this man's example. Instead, we pray that we would respond to your mercy and your grace with joy and with faith and trusting in Christ and giving our lives in his worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.